Hey sci-fi fans, this is Sam Whitwer from Force Unleashed, Battlestar Galactica, and Smallville, and you're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. Live long and prosper. Bad feeling about this. Try to turn away from the things that I want to believe in. This is gonna get pretty interesting. Define interest. Oh god, oh god, we're all gonna die. Only try to realize the truth. There is no screw. We are at peace, always. You are listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. And now, from the end of the universe, bringing you the latest in science fiction movies and television shows, here are your hosts. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. This is episode 6-2. That's 62. That's 6 followed by a 2. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. And hello, wherever you are and whenever you are, I am Miles P. McLaughlin. And we are your hosts at the Sci-Fi Diner tonight. Come colds, come high water, come drop Skype calls, come what may. We are here to bring you... News, interviews, and all sorts of goodness at the diner tonight. Absolutely. It has definitely been good. It's been, it's been a great week. We have tons of finales to talk about. We have a couple more coming up in the upcoming weeks, and it's, it's exciting. The only finale that we probably won't talk about is Lost. Is that right, Miles? Yeah, I just, it's not a show I got into, um, but just a reminder to our listeners that, um, we did speak with, uh, Mara Furlong, uh, back at, uh, Farpoint, and, their interview aired uh, last week, and so need to get you know a little bit more lost. Uh, I encourage you to if you haven't listened to that interview yet, uh, listen to our Mirror Furlong interview, or let's do it again. Yeah, you know, and here, here's and here's the thing: it's a uh, you know not only is she good for Lost, but also Babylon Five fans, and uh, it plays to all. and And we're just trying to share some Lost goodness here. You know, we you know, I, I too, Miles, never got into the show. I watched the very first two episodes and. Believe me, if I have the time, and I may take the time sometime to actually walk through all six seasons of Lost, five seasons of Lost, I forget how many, I think it's six, uh, and I, I just haven't taken the time to do it. I think by the time I was kind of interested in Lost, there were three, four seasons in, and it just seemed like a pretty big uh, thing to catch up with. Well, Miles, tonight we have a absolutely phenomenal menu in store for our listeners, and listeners, uh, regarding any of these topics that we talk about, any of our thoughts on them, we obviously welcome your thoughts into them as well. You can always call into our listener feedback line, one 508 and leave us your thoughts on the finales, on the news we're talking, on the interviews that we're sharing. We love to hear from you. It not only helps us bring you a better show, but, eh, you know, you know, it breaks up you having to listen to us all the time. Right, and we we're interested in your feedback. Uh, we, we we sincerely are. Um, um, are we? You know, are we doing a good job? Could we do something a little better? Um, maybe there's a, there's a show you guys are watching we aren't watching. Let us know. Yeah, I mean, and here's the reality. I mean, Miles and I can talk forever about this stuff, uh, but we are very very interested in what you're saying. That's it. Let's move on. On the menu tonight. We are serving up an awesome interview with David J. Williams, author of the Autumn Rain Trilogy. If you don't know what that is, uh, you've got to check it out. Autumn Rain Trilogy, Autumn Rain 2010, to, wait, 
2110 is the URL for that, and you'll want to check it out. Just type it into Google or something. There'll be links in the show note. We had a phenomenal time interviewing this guy, Miles. Yeah, he was great to talk to, and uh, uh, readers of sci-fi, I encourage you to check out his book. Yeah, great new author. Third book in the trilogy just came out today, actually, as we're talking, and it's pretty cool. Uh, we also have our trivia answers have begun to roll in for our trivia. We're going to give that in a little bit, but it's your chance to walk home, our guest, to receive in the mail just a little token from Lost to help you remember it, a signed print that you can win. And the question is, do you have the geek knowledge to win it? Well, three people do, but do you? We it's start a harder question. It is a harder question. I was actually surprised yes. within a uh, within an hour after I posted the question on Twitter, I had a response. I knew we have intelligent listeners. We have smart listeners, that's for sure. We start off our news by talking about Fringe, Smallville, and V finales and share what we're hoping for from the uh, SGU and Flash Forward finale. Flash Forward finale coming up this week, SGU the following week. What will we be watching this summer? We're going to tell you that, too. Two future shows that we're looking forward to, Alphas and Spielberg's Terra Nova. Hitler kills Megan Fox. We'll explain that in a little bit. The Associated <laughs> Press is Star Wars Confused. The Associated Press might be a news service, but it doesn't get things right all the time. And for you gamers out there, Mass Effect is being made into a movie. Rumors of that earlier, but uh, some changes, but it's still being made. The Road DVD hits stores and talks about the apocalypse and what it would really be like to be in an apocalyptic world. Miles brings you This Week in Star Trek, and Scott gives you his top five sci-fi crashes in the Sci-Fi 5 and 5. So that is a full plate. I can't wait to hear that your uh, top five at five. Oh, it, it, it'll be good. I actually, I'm going to admit, it was not, three of them are maybe my original, and two of them I got some help on. So, it's not mm-hmm. all me. It was a collaborative effort, the Sci-Fi Five and Five. Uh, it well, should be interesting. It will. Miles, let's move into some show news, and uh, why don't you start off by talking about iTunes? Yes. Uh, many of you uh, listeners uh, get our show by subscribing to on iTunes. Um if you don't mind, if you spend a couple minutes uh, just giving us a review, it just gives us a little more visibility. And so if you, if you give us that five-star review, that, that'd be great. It give, gives us our, our podcast a little more exposure, um, and it won't take that much of your time. No, no, we'd appreciate it. And the reality is we want your feedback, whether it's on iTunes or leaving a note on the, uh, on the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Uh, dot com website and the show notes responding to that or just a call or an email we just love to hear from you and uh, one of the ways that we would love to hear from you is to give us your sci-fi five and five many times we'll have the guests that we have on talk about their sci-fi five and five miles and i have obviously are more than willing to share our sci-fi five and five and uh, but we have had some people that have called in with their sci-fi and five and five if you go back to the episodes and we just encourage you that if you have five best things or worst things in science fiction Come on, uh, you know, share them. You can email them, and we'll read them. Or you can call into one eight 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 five zero eight four three four three. And many times we'll mention this at the end of the show, but uh, some people don't stick around for the end. Okay, just and just a reminder: if you are coming to Shirley this year, uh, let us know. Let us know ahead of time. Maybe we can um, meet up with you. Maybe we can uh, get a drink or something. But we would like to uh, maybe meet meet you in person if uh, you're coming out to uh, Shirley of Thirty Two. 
Yeah, and talking about uh, shore leave, uh, you know, we had a conversation a few episodes back about uh, cons and how personal we like the small cons and how intimate they are. And Kevin Batchelder called in and gave us his thoughts about one of his favorite cons and and his views on the cons. So here, let me go ahead and play that, and then we'll comment on it. Scott and Miles, it's Kevin Batchelder from the Tuning It to Sci-Fi TV podcast. I wanted to give you some quick thoughts uh, on the topic you've been Touching on lately conventions, like you guys, I certainly enjoy the smaller ones, any ones that are uh, within short driving distance, to be able to go and uh, spend time with your fellow fans and meet some of the celebs. The intimacy is always great, and uh, I certainly can't go wrong doing those. I've been to a few of the creation conventions as well, and while they are certainly a little more corporate naturally, you still can have a good time uh, at many of those. But the one that I always go to that I highly recommend every year now is Dragon Con, which occurs over Labor Day weekend down in Atlanta every year. And some folks are a little turned off because of the size and some of the stories they've heard because it's a, you know, 24 hour a day con basically. And, and that's understandable with 30,000 plus attendees. But the wonderful thing about Dragon Con is that it's fan run. Each of the different programming tracks, and there are over 30 of them, I think we're up to 35 this year, uh, is run by a fan, a, a director and their staff who focus stuff strictly about that particular topic. I mean, you've got, you could go to this convention and there are panels and events running from 10 in the morning to well past midnight every day not even counting the full overnight parties and uh, film festivals and such. But you can go and see nothing but uh, Star Wars. There's an entire track on Star Wars, on Star Trek, on Stargate, Joss Whedon topics, writers, sci-fi and fantasy writing, costuming, podcasting, gaming, uh, fantasy, you name it. It's, you know, uh, Tolkien. It's all there. So it's a chance to, to either focus or go across section. It's pretty amazing uh, the number of fans you'll run into and the guests are very comfortable because this is known as a bit of a party convention too. So the guests are used to being elbow to elbow in restaurants and bars. Aaron Douglas, uh, one year, quite a up late in a bar with him, having a lot of fun and sat next to Ellen Muth from Dead Like Me at dinner one night. She was very nice and it's, it's pretty amazing that way. So it's very comfortable even though there's a lot of folks around. The one last item, quick story last year had really a big moment. There was a big BSG panel. You know, a couple of them they did in their big room with like 3,000 fans there. And on the same panel, we had um, Edward James Olmos, Michael Hogan, Mary McDonnell, Aaron Douglas, uh, Kate Vernon, and uh, James Callis, plus a few other of the actors or technical folks, all together on one panel asking questions. That was pretty amazing. And to finish it all off, my running short on time, Michael Hogan said to uh, Edward James Olmos, let's uh, go ahead, Commander, take us out. So uh, he stood up and did a chant of, so say we all to the crowd and the crowd back to him. And after a few renditions, when everyone was in perfect unison, got to tell you, I'm still getting goosebumps thinking about that now. So that was quite something. So wouldn't be turned off by it just because it's large. It's a ton of fun. And I encourage folks to go to any conventions they can get to, to to meet other folks just like all of us. Definitely support the fan uh, cons, but, but go, I mean, go to a corporate one if you can. I mean, either one, you'll, you'll be a treat, uh, but Personal experience, the fan ones are just a little more intimate. You get a little more one-on-one time with the guests. I think that's probably true of these smaller, the smaller, more uh, closer cons tend to, you tend to have that interaction. The guest stars may not be quite as big, but you get, they're definitely, definitely a bit more accessible. Uh, however, I think it's great that Dragon Con, 30,000 plus people is fan run, uh, and, and is not necessarily a corporate con, and, and has, you know, I would certainly love to go there. I think one of the things for me is always uh, time, money, accessibility, and family, and where I'm at with my family right now. You know, maybe when my kids are growing, 
I might be able to con, no pun intended, my wife into going to Dragon Con or Comic Con or something like that. But you know, with two kids in the in my in my brood, I can't really do that. Right. I went to some larger ones back in the um, late back 80s in the and day 90s. when I was your age. No, I'm just kidding. Yes. Um, no, I won't make any old, old man comments. But um, um, but but yeah, I mean, I've been to a couple in Philly with the larger ones where they get maybe a more well-known guest like a William Shatner or, or Patrick Stewart. Uh, they were a lot of fun, too. Uh, but, again, it's a question of balancing expense, you know, where it is. Uh, Philly's not that far from us, but for some people, it's it, it they have to stay in a hotel or something um, because they're coming from far away. And, I mean, the reality is some people make this their main vacation throughout a year, you know. They live, they, they, they work year-round to go to a con. It becomes a family event, and so they'll they'll go down to, to Comic-Con or to Dragon Con. It's Labor Day weekend, and, and, uh, and, and they'll, they'll make a trip out of it. Right, that's true. So... Whatever, but thanks, Kevin, for calling in and letting us news. Uh, by the way, we may take you up. You sent an email about us uh, maybe doing a con show. Maybe we'll do a uh, get get Keith the Canada on here, get you on here, and uh, Miles and I can comment on different aspects, different types of cons. I tell you what, as far as someone to speak about cons, Keith lives at the cons, so he certainly could uh, give his two cents about the different types of cons and the way they play out. Absolutely. He, he's all over the place. He when it comes is to definitely cons. all over the place. Well, let's move into our trivia for this week. Miles, why don't you give us the uh, trivia question that's on the docket for this week? All right. Last week we asked, who is Wyatt Miller and what does he have to do with heroes? And uh, what can they win if they answer this correctly? Um, in, in lieu of uh, lost a- ending last week, we are giving away a signed Mira Furlong Danielle Rousseau on a lost print. Yes, and so if you know the answer to this, please let us know. Uh, you can Twitter us at the Sci-Fi Diner or at Son of Wharf or at Herzog. You can obviously email us at the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast at gmail.com or call us 1-888-508-4343. Uh, and uh, let us know that you know the answer. Give us the answer. And the odds are pretty good. Right now we only have three people that have given us the correct answer, and uh, we have another week to go here. So get it in by Tuesday of next week, and you should be good. Okay, well, let's move into our news. But before we do that, I want to play a promo from a show called The Gamma Quadrant. Now, Miles, you listen to The Gamma Quadrant, right? I do, um, and uh, someone started listening to it earlier this year. It's, it's a podcast where uh, they they discuss uh, an episode of, of Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. They talk about the the story, um, the acting, even the costumes. They rate it at the end. Um, so it's a uh, three very passionate Star Trek: Deep Space Nine fans um, giving their thoughts on um, the episodes of uh, Deep Space Nine. Right now, they just started season three. And what more can you want than people that are podcasting with passion about what they love? Uh, That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Anyways, here's the promo. Ever feel like it is hard to make friends with people from other planets? Tired of other races in the Gamma Quadrant pushing you around? The universe is a dangerous place. The Dominion can help. We offer mediation, Protection, Ketracel White provided to every new recruit. Contact us via the iTunes store under the Gamma Quadrant, and one of our Vortas will be happy to send you an application. 
The Gamma Quadrant is the podcast dedicated to all things Deep Space Nine. Look for us at gammaquadrant.libsyn.com, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N, or under Gamma Quadrant at the iTunes store. All right, welcome back to the Sci-Fi Diner. We have a ton of TV news to share with you, a little bit of movie news and some DVD news, but let's get right into it by talking about some of the finales that Miles and I have been watching that we wanted to share with you. Now, we've had a couple of finales that we've talked about in the show already. Dollhouse finale, of course, was January, uh, and then Heroes was in February, so we don't really count them in among the spring finale. Spring uh, finale season, I guess, so to say. But we have a couple that we want to talk about. And let's start out with the Fringe finale. Uh, Miles, what was your thought? You got a chance to watch Fringe, right? Yes, uh, yes, I did. And, and uh, what did you think? Enjoyed it immensely. Um, and it it kind of gave us some of what we wanted, well, at least what I wanted. Um, you know, do our heroes on our universe have counterparts on the other side? And for a lot of them, they do. And uh, for uh, Olivia, not only did she have a counterpart, but her her partner he got uh, got killed. His counterpart's still alive on the other side too. So um, yeah, and by that we mean Charlie, not the John Scott character from season one. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, by the uh, way, we will we will be giving some spoilers here, just uh, up front, you know. Talk about them. So if you didn't watch any of these just skip ahead. If you're listening to us in the ACC. Uh, the the AAC feed or the the MP. If you have an iPod, you can skip ahead. If you're listening to the MP3 feed, just fast forward a little bit. Yeah, I don't know, Miles. I thought that this finale of the three that I've watched so far, this finale of the two, I guess I watched so far, uh, this finale was the best. And I'm not sure how I compare with Dollhouse because I immensely love the Dollhouse finale. But as far as the spring finales go, I loved this finale. I thought it was action packed. It was giving me. Answers in a lot of cases to what we were looking for, especially with William Bell. And so I thought some of these answers were were good. Uh, it, of course, raised some bigger questions, which a good finale does. I liked it. Yeah, like you said, it raises questions that will continue on for next season, which which we want. We want more interesting stuff for next season. And also, the, the Mirror Universe uh, thread has not been, you know, as been tied yet, we, we're still going to see some. There's a lot of loose ends with that for for next season. Yeah, we never see the machine ever in use that's supposed to be the doomsday device that utilizes Peter. Although we get to see that it's biomechanical in some way. Olivia, our Olivia, is stuck in the parallel universe, and the alt Olivia is now in our universe, which of course complicates things. Miles, I'm going to tell you when that first happened. When I saw her tattoo at the end, I missed the switch. I had to go back and rewatch the episode because I was convinced that the writers had slipped up and pulled one and it wasn't logical. But I was wrong. But <laughs> I was wrong. Yeah, I, I, I didn't see the switch until she moved her hair back and I saw the tattoo. So. Yeah. Well, it happens, they, they, it happens right after, out of the theater when... When uh, Olivia wakes William Bell, he's lying on the ground after the phosphorus grenade goes off. And okay. That, that's where the switch. That's where the switch occurs. By the way, if you go back and rewatch that scene, you know when he hand when William Bell hands Olivia the grenades, right? Um, mm-hmm. And she's holding him with both hands, and he tells him not to jostle him. 
Well, in the next scene, he, she draws her gun, and she's holding both of them in one hand. Then she's up aiming the gun with one hand, and then the very next shot, she's holding the gun with both hands, shooting. Interesting. Yeah, with no grenades. So interesting there. A little bit of film magic. Anyways, it was a phenomenal uh, episode. I did like the fact that Walter and Peter were kind of redeemed themselves at the end a little bit. Yeah, we did see some um, them come together a little more. I mean, the relationship is not totally uh, resolved, but it's definitely a lot better than it was when. Well, uh, I think he sees that. Uh, I think he sees that Walter does care about him. Yeah, and Walter had the best best of intentions. Uh, you know, however, however uh, awry they went. Oh, I was just saying. I think we've probably seen the last of William Bell. I do. Too. They uh, kind of they kind of allude to that that the way he that he probably disintegrated and in getting him back into the real universe. But I think he also established that Olivia can still get back because she had the as a Cortexa fan. So. Right. But anything else we want to say about this finale, Miles? No, I think we've said it. A uh, very great se- season finale. It was good. It wraps up the season. We're definitely looking forward to season three. What more can I say? I'm looking forward to season three. Miles, let's move into the Smallville finale, which I assume you watched, right? I did watch it, yes. So tell us about the Smallville finale. You won't be spoiling anything for me because I'm not watching Smallville, so go ahead. Okay, well, we finally see the, the um, resolution with the uh, Kandorians. Um, so the whole storyline, right? Yeah, that that one we will not. That one should be finished for you know, next season. Um, but um, what we do is at the end we see Clark falling off a building with a blue kryptonite blade in his chest. So that's where that's where it ends. So uh, we'll see how that uh, works. Uh, what I liked about it was we got to see all. They had little vignettes. When I say vignettes, maybe a couple seconds of all, pretty much all of the Justice League members with the exception of Aquaman and the Flash, but we saw uh, the Canary, uh, we saw Black Canary, we saw um, we saw Hawkman, um, we actually saw a little band between Hawkman and Green Arrow, and um, and also a Cyborg. Uh, so um, so that, that, that was really cool. Um, and what, I, what we, we should also say is the next season of Smallville is going to be the last season of Smallville. Uh, right. So they are, so they are going to wrap... So we we get one more season of Smallville. Um, I'll be curious if it, if it um, if any spinoff shows come off come out of it. I, I think that, I think that there's a potential for that. Uh, now has, has has Clark suited up yet? N- no, um, but we did see in the in the episode he's pulling a it was a gift from his mother, and there's like a red cape that he pulls out of it. So there is some allusion to that. So uh, potentially in its final season, we'll finally get to see uh, Clark suit up. Oh, let's hope. Let's hope after nine seasons. Come on. I know. They've been teasing us long enough. <laughs> They've been stringing us along. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about the V finale? Let's talk about V. V, uh, v was good. I liked it. I loved the story. I loved the whole freezing of the eggs. Uh, I loved Anna's kind of end cry at the end. Along with her daughter's kind of slight maniacal smile, there. Hell, I thought it was good. I didn't think it would. Uh, Miles, you really liked this, didn't you? Uh, I did too. I thought it, this was a much. I mean, it was a better episode. I thought things were a little tighter in this one. Um, some of the episodes some, we've been watching. Yes, uh, but we first time we see a visitor gun, um, and it, I mean, it basically vaporizes uh, whoever is the target. Uh, so that, that's fun. 
only time we saw the visitors with any kind of weapons, it was with some kind of knives or some kind of blade or something like that. But also had a lot of what, what's going on, um, what's going on with, with Marcus and Kyle. Um, Marcus obviously being the um, uh, Anna's uh, kind of like second in command, right hand, right. and Kyle was the uh, uh, the mercenary that's helping the resistance. So are uh, the so double agent or something? Something's going on. Uh, is Valerie dead? I mean, did, did Anna really kill her after uh, Valerie uh, gave birth to the... Um, well, if she is, can they bring her back? Because, I mean, they bring back... Uh, who do they, What medical doctor do they bring back? They bring back uh, the doctor. They brought back the doctor. Yeah, the doctor. I, I guess, was he really dead or was he just wounded when he got shot? So we'll see if... Uh, We'll see what happens next season. Um, and what's going on with the fleet? I mean, is, is the fleet and why is the sky all pink? Uh, what, what's going? What, what's Anna doing with the sky? Yeah. So instead of why is the sky blue, it's why is the sky pink? We don't know. Yeah. We don't know. But it was an interesting way to end the episode. You know what? It was kind of a mirror. The, the ending of that episode kind of mirrored the beginning of the the, the season when the visitors first arrive. Everyone's looking out their windows, looking at pictures. I don't know if you caught that or not. Yeah, there's like, because I guess people look at their TVs or whatever. Right. But it's, because it, something is happening, yeah. again. And so. what's, with the, what's with the father, like, going on a limb and speaking his mind in his church, right? I don't know, I, I really liked it. I really loved this episode. I like that, I like Chad's De- Chad Deckard's turn. I think we're setting up for what potentially could be, if they write this right, a stronger second season. I agree. There's um, a lot more conflict. The conflicts have been established, and another 13-episode season could really come on strong here. Yeah, I think I, I agree 100%. If they do it right, they, they can have an even better uh, next season. Well, and then, of course, we have two finales left that we're watching, unless I'm missing any miles. Flash forward to two-hour series uh, and season finale, both the series and the season, because it did not get renewed. That's this week. This Thursday it airs. That mm-hmm. should be absolutely phenomenal. I'm looking forward to it because things seem to be coming to a head here. And then the SPU mm-hmm. finale is next week. They're taking a week off because of Memorial Day. So uh, so that's kind of a – we have two finales left that we'll be talking about coming up, I guess. Right. Yeah. Well, let's uh, – Miles, so these are our TV shows. Once these are off the air, we don't have much new to be watching, do we? What are we, what are we going to be watching over the summer? Uh, well, a show you and I really like, uh, Warehouse 13, will be back July the 9th. Oh, and it sounds like they're adding a person to the cast. It sounds like it's going to be good. We're going to probably, be, we're going to we'll definitely be giving you some news on that. Right, and uh, listeners may be interested. We, we talked with uh, Allison Scaliotti uh, last uh, September. Um, so if, um, if you want to check back on our archives, you might want to hear that interview again. Yeah, that was, uh, and that was at the very tail end of the season, so it kind of plays in between the seasons, and... Uh, Looking forward to seeing her back on screen again, and it'll be good. I can't wait for that. That happens the first day of Shore Leave, so I won't be watching that live, but we'll be watching it probably in retrospect. Right. And, Miles, I I was not watching Doctor Who, and I kind of said, oh, I don't have time for another show. So Don, you know, Don Bender, uh, old, old host of the show, was over the other night, and we decided to watch the very first episode of the newest Doctor Who. We had him on his he had it on his computer. He watched. I wa- we watched it, and I was hooked. Okay. Yeah. So I am watching Doctor Who. I'm now about four episodes in. Absolutely loving it. Loving the throwbacks of the prior seasons. Uh, 
And I'm actually going back and catching up on some of the movies they released between season four and season five. I'm especially looking forward to when they switch doctors because I don't know how familiar you are with who, Miles, but every once in a while they switch doctors and so they're now on the 11th doctor. Um, yeah, I, I do know they do that. So, and it's, you know, I was thinking about that. This, this show, it's kind of amazing that they're able to do that because many shows, when you switch a front runner of a show, the show kind of, uh, fails. But it's, I guess, who has kind of set precedent that he can do this, can reincarnate into a, a new who, and people are kind of say, okay, yeah, let's do it. But I think the last three who's have been real good. Um, it's, it's, I mean, Doctor Who's been on since the 60s, so it's, it's, it's a format that works well for them. Yeah. Well, let's move into two other pieces of TV news, and then we got to keep moving in our show here. And, uh, you know, this news kind of lines in with Lost, but we have some news on the, the guy that directed the Lost finale. So go ahead, Miles. Why don't you take it away? All right. Lost director takes on the new superhero show, Alphas. Uh, Jack Bender directed the series finale of Lost. Uh, we don't know what, what you're, you're doing now that Lost is gone, other than mourning, just, just like uh, many uh, viewers. But one... Lost, he has moved on to a new home. Jack Bender, who directed the season finale of Lost and has worked on The Sopranos, Alias, Carnival, and more, will act as a director and executive producer of Alphas, a 90-minute pilot for a sci-fi about ordinary citizens with extraordinary powers who take the law into their own hands. Alphas follows a team of ordinary citizens who possess extraordinary and unusual mental skills. Using physical feats and uniquely advanced mental abilities, this unlikely team takes the law into their own hands and uncovers what the CIA, FBI, and Pentagon have not been able or willing to solve. These gifted individuals must balance their quirky personalities, disparate backgrounds with their not always visible powers as they work to solve crimes, stop the ticking, bomb, ticking time bomb away, and catch the enemy. We're, we are very excited that Jack has been chosen to be part of Alphas. Well, it's kind of cool, though, that we get the finale, because the finale was uh, apparently was spectacular if, if you were a Lost fan. Uh, it's cool to see him playing in to a new show coming up. And this show actually has me curious, Miles, the idea of Alphas. Yes, it does. Um, and with with the demise of, of heroes being gone, it's going to have another superhero-like show, although we are going to get Ordinary Family. family and, and The Cape, and there's a lot of superhero shows coming out. Uh, I hope that Lost certainly has more direction than it did, or excuse me, uh, I hope that these, this new show, uh, uh, Alphas, has a little bit more direction than, than Lost did in the middle, because if you talk to any Lost fan, they will admit that it started strong in the middle, was kind of Lost, no pun intended, and... You know, when they set a finale date for it, all suddenly it got good again. So uh, let's hope this has a little bit more direction. Uh, last piece of news and TV news is let's talk about Spielberg's Terra Nova TV series, right? Anything that has Spielberg attached to it is bound to draw people's attention. And so when I saw this news story about Terra Nova, it has my attention, and rightly so. This could be what Fox just announced could be one of the biggest sci-fi series in TV history. But they didn't give us much details, but uh, we know a little bit about it, and Sci-Fi Wire has kind of put some stuff together to help us understand what is Terra Nova. And here's the thing. It is a very high production price, a cool $4 million an episode. That, that seems expensive, Miles, for a TV episode. Very so it's expensive, which means A, it's good, and B, if it's expensive and they don't get the viewers they want, it'll be canceled right away. Uh, but it sounds like they're filming everything up front. 
So it's not going to be episodic or them filming as they go. Because of the huge per episode price, and even and maybe even the script, the traditional method of filming a pilot and then shutting down the production may well be skipped and the first 13 episodes filmed together all at once. What do you think of that, Miles? I, 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 it's very ambitious, but I think it, it could, you know... At least you'll get 13 episodes, right? Right, and it's but it's also a risk if it if it if it's if if it doesn't get the viewers, um, it's good. It's 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 a it's a huge gamble and a huge loss for Spielberg. Yeah, uh, this is from the press release. The series centers on the Shannon family as they join a tenth pilgrimage of settlers to Terra Nova, the first colony of humans in the second chance for civilization. The principles include uh, Father Jim, wife Elizabeth, young son Josh, teen daughter Maddie, and a fellow named Commander Frank Taylor. Hmm. Isn't this pretty much the character dynamic of Lost in Space minus a scientist and friendly robot? Eh, probably. Uh, <coughs> why on earth are they comparing it to Avatar? We're going to put an image in our show notes, and you'll see why they're comparing this to Avatar. Uh, the picture there, Miles, if you see it. Uh, there's definitely there's definitely reasons to, to, to compare. Uh, other big yeah. wheels with a hand in the production include Brandon Braga, who is a person you should know, Miles, uh, producer yep. of 24, longtime Star Trek scribe, as a showrunner, and Dave Fury, writer from Lost, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and Peter Chernin. Chernin was Rupert Murdoch's right-hand man in, at Fox, but left last year after two decades with the News Corp. So it sounds like there's some big hitters in this. Um, no major cast decisions have been made yet. Kyle Chandler and Kevin Bacon both turned down the lead, whether this is due to script troubles or just an unwillingness to commit to a long TV project. Bacon has three more features to complete, remains unseen. Terra Nova is scheduled to come out mid-season, but beyond that, Fox is being cagey. We don't want to tie it into a date. We want to do this show right, said Riley. Shooting begins later this summer in Hawaii. I want to be on that shoot, Miles. Me too. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, we have a couple other pieces of news. It sounds interesting. I'm just interested uh, because with a budget like $4 million attached to it and Spielberg attached to it, you know it's at least going to be visually stunning. Right, and and he's got some good people to make this work. It's just, will it be enough to grab the viewers? And um, I, I asked that same question about uh, Avatar. It just, you know, it was a huge gamble on uh, Cameron's part, but it, it, it's paid off huge. All right, well, let's move into some movie news, and we have some news in Transformers 3, Miles. Yes, we do, and we kind of talked about this a little bit last week, uh, you know, um, whether she will be in the next film or not. Well, she's not going to be. Yeah, and give us a summary of this, Miles. All right, well, Paramount is not, repeat, not picking up Megan Fox's option to star in Transformers 3. And guess what? It was director Michael Bay's call. Guess I'll teach Megan to diss a director and compare him to Hitler. Um, Bay plans on giving Shia a new love interest, and according to uh, Nikki Fink's blog, you're probably casting the female co-star even as we type. And please don't suggest uh, Shia LaBeouf's girlfriend, uh, Carrie Mulligan. She's adorable and all, but definitely not an action babe. So um, Megan has accused of um, uh, Michael Bay uh, that her skin basically got damaged because he wanted her really tan. And she spent as much time in the sun as possible, but she thinks her skin has gotten damaged and she, she's at risk for skin cancer. So, um, and, and basically she called him Hitler. So Right. And, 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 and my, you know, according to one source, Bay did it, and another source saying Megan's uh, chose not to do it. 
Mm-hmm. Either way, I think the the story really is Megan's non Transformers three. Uh, news as of today is that they were looking at a Victoria's you know underwear model to do it, which you know hey, you know that's probably going to be some eye candy there, Miles. I mean that's the reality of it, right? And that's, right, what right. That's, that's what they're looking for, really, to fill the role. I mean, the, the, the sidekick for Shia LaBeouf really doesn't do much in the show. No, it's, it's not that crucial a role. No. I'm more interested in uh, John Malkovich uh, and uh, Alan Tudyk being oh, in it myself. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, hands down, totally agree with you, Miles. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, in other TV, in other movie news, uh, this of course was the 30th anniversary of the Empire's Strikes Back, and they were celebrating at St. Jude's Children's Hospital in LA, where they uh, had all the stars from the Empire Strikes Back come out, or at least a lot of them, from Ian McGregor to Peter Mayhew. And AP did a video recap of the event, and it was awesome, except they got their, their space pirate switched. Uh, I'll embed the video clip, but you'll see Harrison Ford is called Billy to. Billy D. Williams, which, if it really is Billy D., that's quite the operation. Uh, uh, I'll say. Yeah. But anyways, it's fun. It's great to see all these stars supporting St. Jude's and helping out with a charity like this. Um, real briefly, Mass Effect is getting a film adaptation. We're going to put that news in our show notes. We, aren't, we don't have time to go into it here, but if you're a Mass Effect fan and a gamer, uh, we'll have a clip uh, of that in our show notes, so check it out. And lastly, uh, DVD news. The Road came out this week, and uh, the Road DVD has a documentary that describes the making of an apocalypse with many stars and bonus features that includes people like Viggo Morrison, who, of course, starred in it. Uh, and there's a lot of other people that were in that as well. I forgot. I saw some other names attached to it. But they talk about what would life be like if everything was taken away and all we had to do is survive for food or like fight for food. Uh, I'll be checking that out. Yeah, definitely. It's in my rental queue, and hopefully I'll be getting it soon. Let's move into our twist. This week is All right. Well, this week uh, in Star Trek news, um, I'm sure uh, many of you who work on your own cars, you probably have a Haynes um, a book on that has... That has um, Detailed um, notes about your car, uh, drawings, um, how to fix your car if you have this kind of problem. Well, uh, Haynes is publishing a, a, a uh, book on the, the original USS Enterprise. It's uh, USS Enterprise, a user's manual. It has a guide with complete cutaway drawings, technical illustrations, photographs, along with comprehensive background information and specifications on the technology used on board uh, the Enterprise. And it, it will be out in September. Ooh, that sounds like and that's something that any diehard Star Trek fan needs. And, and, and diehard Star Trek fan and somebody who works on their cars. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Thanks for sharing that, Miles, and uh, appreciate you sharing your choice. Well, before we move into our interview, we want we have one last promo we want to play, and it's from our good friends at DVD Geeks. Uh, and uh, their podcast, we just want to pimp their podcast just a little bit. They've been on hiatus a little bit as Mary's moved to, to L.A., but it sounds like they're gearing up to start again. So uh, make sure you check them out. It's the DVD Geeks. Real fans with real opinions. Every Monday from 7 to 8 p.m. Central on FearlessRadio.com. FearlessRadio.com. Remember... Scene selection is not a special feature. 
the DVD geeks on fearlessradio.com. For more information, point your web browser to dvdgeeks.tv. Welcome back to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. We have an awesome interview. I know we say this every week, but it seems like we have some great people that we bring on to the show and interview, Miles, doesn't it? Absolutely. And uh, here we have a guy that, according to his blog, is descended from Australian convicts. David J. Williams um, was born in England and resides in Washington. And um, he was just in time for Nixon's impeachment, which tells you a little bit, bit of his age, I guess. And uh, graduated with Yale with a degree in history and is now finishing the third book, or the third book was just released on the Autumn Rain Trilogy. Miles, what did you think of the interview we had with this guy? Uh, I think it was a great interview, and um, this is another guy that's, that's helping make science science fiction happen um, in in, uh, in print. And it wouldn't surprise me if in a few years we see uh, what what he's put out on the big screen someday. I think yeah. uh, what I, I think this I think this trilogy really works for the big screen. I think it does too. It, it, it's it's got sci-fi, it's got spy thriller, political intrigue, it's got it all. Um, so. Uh, and, and check out his website. He's got he's got good trailers for his his books. And, yeah, and I'll uh, play one of the trailers as we go into the interview here, just so you can hear the audio. It's well done, and uh, and what a great sponsor behind it. Bantam Books is behind it, and so that's always cool to see a, a huge publisher supporting a uh, a newcomer like this. Uh, and this is the third book in the Autumn Rain trilogy that uh, he's going to be touting here that just came out today. But obviously, you want to start with book one. If you are a hard sci-fi fan that loves sci-fi that gives you details and, and, and plays with hard science and politics, this is the stuff for you. This is a phenomenal book and a phenomenal series from a phenomenal author. Uh, we hope you enjoy our interview with David J. Williams. The Phoenix Space Elevator. The joint construction of the superpowers. The largest object ever built. And Autumn Rain's first target. Everybody suspects everybody. Fingers are pointed. As the relations between the nations unravel and armies mobilize, a small team of agents hunt the rain across the Earth-Moon system, only to realize too late that the rain are hunting them. Jason, we've got a problem. Ladies and gentlemen, you have heard us bring to you authors of a genre sci-fi many times in the sci-fi diner. Well, tonight we want to do something a little different and talk to an author who is putting out uh, his own sci-fi work. His debut novel has been described by fellow sci-fi writer Stephen Baxter, winner of the prestigious Philip K. Dick Award, as Tom Clancy interfacing Bruce Sterling. Sci-fi diner listeners, we are delighted to, bring, delighted to be talking with uh, David G. 
Williams, author of the Autumn Rain Trilogy. David, welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. Gentlemen, it's great to be here. Uh, well, it, it's very good to have you. It was, it was good just chatting with you just here a little bit before the show and finding out that we're practically neighbors. Indeed, indeed, yeah. chatting in the proverbial green room. Right, 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 right. <laughs> or something like that. Well, you know, <laughs> what, one of the reasons that we obviously uh, have you on the show is we have a book that is going to be coming out for you. But before we get into that, let's find out a little bit about who is David J. Williams. I wonder that myself. So, <laughs> uh, well, um, so tell us a little bit about your history. What, why sci-fi? How did you get into sci-fi? Uh, and maybe, I guess, maybe the other extension of that is how did you get into writing sci-fi? Yeah, I mean, I think science fiction for me is just always, you know, in some ways, it's the typical story, right? Of you grew up with it, and it was what you were reading. Uh, I was born in the UK. I live in the US. So, you know, there's almost like a if science fiction is about kind of looking at cultures from an outsider's perspective, that's something with, uh, you know, Anglo-American heritage in a sense that I've, I've always been doing. Maybe that made it more natural to, to look at science fiction. You know, maybe I was just sort of your typical nerd in high school. Um, not that I've ceased to be that necessarily. Um, but, but for me, science fiction is all about, you know, to me, it's not a subgenre. To me, it is the genre. I mean, to me, literature is a subclass of science fiction. It's like Joyce Carol Oates once said, you know, all writers of fiction are writing science fiction. Most of them just don't know it. Um, <laughs> and to my mind, when you look at science fiction, you know, it's the only, uh, uh, medium or only genre, as it were, that can really address where we're going as a species. It looks at these metaphysical questions without recourse to religion uh, necessarily, uh, and I think there's something tremendously powerful about that. I, I, you know, grew up reading the stuff and then kind of drifted away from it. Was looking at pursuing a career in history and then just kind of got bit by the bug again. A bit of an early midlife crisis in my late twenties, early thirties, and just started writing it at that point. Hmm. That's awesome. You know, in what you say is true. I mean, I was just talking with my students today. I'm a school teacher uh, by trade, and uh, and I was talking. We had just read through uh, Har- uh, Harlan Ellison's, which I'm assuming you're familiar with. Uh, of course, Harlan Ellison's uh, story, Repent Harlequin, and the commentary mm-hmm. that has on. I mean, talking about what science fiction does at its best is kind of say, what if we continue down this path where we're so consumed with time? You know. And so it does. This whole commentary on where we're at as a society, I totally agree with that statement. So very cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of this. In some ways, it's kind of this. Um, it, it's the it's the dual nature of science fiction, right? You're talking about the future, and you're creating these futures that you can't really predict. But at the same time, yeah, there's that element of the present. If this goes on, I mean, Allison looking at the clockwork nature, the regimentation of our, our schedules in our lives, and saying, "Well, what happens if that just goes to the nth degree?" Right. Um, you know, and if science fiction is about the future, it's it's also very much about where we are in the present moment. What's our per- current predicament? Mm. Very true. Well, um, what other sci-fi are you enjoying now, either on the screen or uh, written word? Uh, you know, right now, actually, I'm uh, getting really into some of the old Brian Alvis stuff, uh, nonstop and that sort of thing. I mean, honestly, I mean, what I'm looking at now is, 
you know, what next? So I'm reading a lot of space opera because that's not what I've been writing. I'm reading a lot of dark fantasy because that's not what I've been writing. Um, you know, I mean, I've sort of, with the Autumn Rain trilogy, it's all been about the near future, right? It's been about the next hundred years. And that comes obviously with its own special um, uh, set of dangers, right? Because you're writing about, if I write about, you know, galaxy-spanning space opera, no one can really look at that and say, ah, I don't think that's going to happen or not, right? I mean, it's so remote. Whereas if you write about the near future and you write about the second Cold War and a new Eastern superpower rising to challenge the United States, you know, people can say, oh, you know, well, I don't know if that scenario is going to happen or what. Um, and I, I, what I, what was ironic to me about my reading and about, you know, where I was going with the Autumn Rain trilogy is I found there was a lot of people out there who they'll happily sit through endless tales about the singularity and faster than light travel, but you tell them that Russia might still be a superpower a hundred years from now, suddenly they're foaming at the mouth. And I thought that was really interesting, right? Because there's sort of this emotive quality to the near future where you're trying to stake that out. Hmm. Well, I think that's, uh, you know, and, and I think that when you go that close in the future, it's near enough that it, that it grounds us in a sense of, we, we, we are looking at the present and saying, well, you know, that's not that far away. So there's a sense of a grounding the story. And so mm-hmm. when you, when you, when you deviate from what seems to be happening currently, I think that's probably the, that's probably the challenge for people. Well, I think it's, it's interesting, right? Cause history has a way of surprising and that's sort of my background in some ways. I mean, the first thing I did when I, started the Autumn Rain trilogy, and they're they're set in the year 2110, so the early 22nd century, literally 100 years from now. This is sort of the 100th reverse centennial, as it were, of the books. Um, And, uh, you know, what what, what you find is that, uh, I mean, that was actually the first thing I did, was to write up a timeline. You know, I was fascinated by this, the, the idea of what would it be like for just the nightmare scenario for U.S. foreign policy, which is if you look at the U.S., the whole foreign policy of the United States is preventing a hostile nation state from controlling uh, Eurasia, right? That's why we were so frightened of the Nazis. That's why we we're so worried about the Soviet Union is that these guys might become the linchpin of a new European super state. And both of them fortunately failed. Um, and so I wrote this timeline out and then I ran around showing all my friends saying, hey, this is the first page of this great epic novel I'm going to write. This was like 10 years ago, right? And they were like, yeah, well, you know, you need characters and plot and narrative. And, you know, I was just getting started at that point. I had no sort of real, because when you start out, you're strictly an amateur in the you know, strict sense of the word. Um, and so obviously the timeline eventually became the parameters of that world. It's out now the end. It's the main appendix for the mirrored heavens and up on the website as well. But once I had that, once I had the second Cold War mapped out, once I had this kind of weaponization of space and weaponization of cyberspace, which I do think is the way this is all going right now. I think you see that in the headlines even now. Um, At that point, the world of autumn rain really started to take shape. Hmm. Now, people have sometimes uh, considered your work to be what's called hard sci-fi. How it... How does that term fit you, do you feel? Well, hard science fiction is one of those sort of terms that, you know, is uh, uh, entirely depends on the perspective and the eye of the beholder, right? Because right. no one runs around saying, oh, it's soft science fiction, right? right? right. Like, <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't get that label hung around except maybe, you know, by your enemies, as it were. I mean, I think, 
at the end of the day, hard science fiction is just simply you're making a really dedicated, really rigorous attempt to get the science right, to establish the broad parameters of what the science is like. So for me, what that meant is I was really interested in what war in space would really look like, you know, and it's obviously not going to look like it, say, does in Star Wars, right, with lasers going pow, you know, I mean, space is silent, and with spaceships maneuvering in blithe disregard of the laws of orbital mechanics, that's that's not going to happen either. Um, but when you look at the U.S. military's planning papers, and there's a lot of good stuff in the public domain, they're really interested in where all this is going because U.S. supremacy right now depends on control of the skies, on control of space. And we know darn well that someone is going to ultimately challenge us there. So what would that warfare look like? So taking a lot of those planning papers and building that up, um, you know, to me, hard science fiction isn't just about the raw science of it. It's about the raw logic of it as well. It's about the military strategy. It's about the tactics. It's about the integrating of uh you know realistic economic projections and scenarios with military projections so it becomes a sort of broader thing as well uh for me you know it's also about you know about the soft sciences it's about the social sciences you know if you, if you live in DC you know that the the biggest enemy of the United States navy isn't Al Qaeda and it isn't China and it isn't Russia it's the US army because those guys are competing for the same funding um and 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 so you know you want to sort of reflect that you want to reflect that in the conspiracies and the uh, bureaucratic politics of the world that you're trying to create. Um, you know they're all on the same side, but at the same time they're not. Um, so how does that play out as well? So to me, hard science fiction is a fairly broad spectrum of you're trying to get a bunch of adjacent disciplines, not necessarily right because who knows what's right, but just realistic. Looking at your site and the description of. Um and I'll touch on this again, but the, you know, like you talk about the weaponry and everything like that, it was very naturalistic. I mean, I didn't, I, you know, it didn't seem like, I, like a lot of sci-fi, it's a huge leap when you see like Star Wars, but in seeing what you, you've presented, I, I don't, you know, it, it's not a huge leap that we, we, we could be going there. Yeah, it's, it's, it, well, it's sort of like this in a sense is that, you know, Again, I'm simply confining myself to the next several decades. And, yeah, you know, on my site, on, on autumnrain2110.com, I, I had a lot of background material that, you know, found its way onto the site as part of the world building. I mean, I, I'm a huge believer in world building and trying to stake out what this terrain is going to be like. The, the, the key with, in some ways, the key with um, weaponization of space is that the weaponization of space, it's, it's hard to read these documents and come away thinking that, you know, what, 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 what's going to happen ultimately is the weaponization of space will occur in tandem with the maturity of directed energy weaponry. And by that, I mean lasers. I don't mean like laser pistols, you know. I mean laser cannons. I mean particle beams, that sort of thing. Um, and what's likely to happen, I mean, the new paradigm of warfare a century from now, maybe longer, maybe shorter, um, is that you're going to be able to target any point on the planet at the speed of light. And you're also going to be able to build the missile shields, the industrial strength missile shields that Ronald Reagan, you know, dreamt of. You know, I mean, that were <laughs> they, they weren't realistic at that point, though they were a good tool to scare the Soviet with. Um 
but but that's ultimately going to be a reality, regardless of how you feel about that from a political standpoint. Uh, that's going to be the reality. And so that was sort of the world that was created is that, you know, this was a second Cold War that made the first one look like a warm up act that made the first one look like a, uh, a, a, a you know, just a, a civilized tea party in a sense. And then the characters themselves are having to sort of deal with that. The characters are, you know, they're all secret agents working for different branches of the U.S. government. Uh, their memories are being hacked while this is going on. And, uh, you know, they've literally been bred for the task of espionage, be it hacking as a razor or kicking down doors and getting in fights as a mech. Those are the guys in powered armor. Um, and so that was all the backdrop within which my characters were having to deal. Hmm. So, uh, how, I mean, when, when you talk about world building, how long does it take you or how long did it take you to kind of bring the world, uh, to build the world of Autumn Rain? The Autumn Range trilogy. Well, the 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 asterisk there obviously is that this was these were my first novels, right? So part of that world building was frankly learning how to write. I mean, I I didn't really construct two sentences together that were worthwhile for about four or five years into this. Um, so that's sort of the the, the caveat across all that. Um, putting that aside. Um, you know, and, and and just simply looking at the, the the what was necessary to do, there was sort of constant toggling back and forth between three things. You're toggling back and forth between the technology of the world, the characters you're creating, and then the actual narrative, the actual plot. You know, the actual. I mean, you know, I could talk to you about weaponization of space all night, and the weaponization of cyberspace that goes along with it, and the fracturing of the internet along geopolitical lines, but ultimately that's not a story. That's all backdrop for whatever story I'm going to create around the conspiracies, around this notion of this, you know, the detente between these two superpowers being shattered by this ultra-terrorist group named Autumn Rain, and no one knows who the heck they are. They suddenly blow up the world space elevator, and now we've got a story, and once I had come up with that, that was the hook. It's who are these guys, and Everyone is being mobilized to hunt across the Earth-Moon system to find out who is Autumn Rain. That search then became the hook, uh, which my characters are getting drawn into. Um, and that, that took several years. Again, you know, filtering that through the prism of starting this as a neophyte writer and having to learn to write and having to, you know, do all this while, you know, holding down the day job. Um, it took several years. Um, but ultimately, it wasn't just one book. It was the entire Autumn Rain trilogy uh, that was coming out of that. I realized I didn't just have one book. I, I had a much larger, more epic, if you will, story to tell. Yeah, I was looking at your site, and readers could get a sneak peek at the political landscape we've been talking about uh, of, of the Autumn Rain world and see pictures of uh, the weapon, weapons, planes, nail vessels uh, described in the story. Um can you comment on that? Uh, it, it, it looks like you're kind of get, helping the readers get an idea of the world that's uh, that exists in Autumn Rain. Well, part, part of that, in a sense, is, you know, honestly, public relations, right? I was trying to create a website that would, you know, really be a magnet and really sort of draw people in and be the center of my online promotion efforts. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that... I, I didn't want it to sort of be the, the, the typical website where, you know, it's all about the author. Um, cause I know ultimately people are, you know, less interested in me and they're more interested in 
the world itself. Um, and I had an off. The, the other thing I had was, you know, uh, since I have a lot of friends in the video game industry, I know a lot of artists and have done a little bit of work on the side for that. Um, and so I was able to sort of bring those guys in, and they were incredibly helpful and incredibly generous at, you know, drawing some of these ships, putting together some of these maps, that sort of thing. So, you know, there's a lot of theory and there's an awful lot of, you know, well, how do we get from the year – the books don't answer the question of how do we get from the year 2010 to the year 2110. The website, though, does answer that question. So there was sort of a larger aspiration for that, if you will. So, it, so in a way that if, if for readers that are totally into the books, they can go in and, in, in a sense, get an extension of the world that isn't necessarily addressed in the books. It gives them more. The website takes it beyond. Yeah, there's bonus material, right? I mean, you, you, you know, you asked earlier about you know favorite movies. Obviously, one of my favorite movies inevitably is Blade Runner. And what I loved in Blade Runner is the use of off-screen space or off-camera space. You hear a lot in Bla- the movie Blade Runner about the off-worlds, you know, the off-planet worlds. You never see them. You don't need to see them. But in a sense, the website is what would show that. You know, that's sort of what I've done here. I mean, is that you never get all the specs of these different spaceships. There's a reference to, you know, a lar- you know, part of the, one of the scenes in Mirror and Heavens, you know, not giving anything away here, is the hijacking of a space plane. You know, double decker space plane. You get the specs of that space plane on the website, but you don't need the specs of that space plane in the book. You just need to go. These guys are in trouble, and they sure as heck wish they could like fire their booster rocket and get away from the lower space plane. So they can't, because the guys in the lower space plane have hijacked them and hacked their system. That's all you really need to know at that point. So it became a kind of way at getting at that off-screen space and building that extra dimension that's implicit in the world uh, of the early 22nd century. Now, I, what, now part of that extension, of course, is is the trailers that you have up there for not only the the current book that's coming out, which we want to talk about here in just a moment, but also about the uh, the other books. Tell us about the impact of trailers as far as in the areas of promotion for the book. Well, I think trailers are are simply one more way in which you know. You, you kind of see that the the, the 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 world of print is not enough, right? That in an online setting, visual impact can be key. We're just, you know, galvanizing people's attention and capturing their imagination. Um, and again, you know, I had the art already. Um, uh, the guy I worked on the Homeworld video games with, uh, uh, one of the guys, Paul Ruske, uh, who's just a sound and visual expert, was able to take some of that art and come up with a way to make it look like it was in motion. I mean, he's an enormously talented guy. Um, and then I wrote some scripts for those trailers, and, you know, you have the results. So the trailer for Machinery of Light, um, uh, you know, which went up today, uh, uh, you know, is thus something that, you know, you get a real sense of the kinetic impact of what's going on here. You get a lot of the sense of the visuals. You get a sense of the immediate predicament of this character, Claire Haskell, who's in many ways the heroine of uh, the Autumn Rain novels. Um, so I think it's a way, again, to kind of uh, tell a little bit more of the story, but also capture people's attention, draw them into that world, give them a little taste of it, uh, and then get them into the books. Now, the series has something for everybody, elements of a spy thriller, political intrigue, and the obvious sci-fi element. Um, I could see this possibly make it to the big screen. 
do you have any hopes and aspirations that uh, Hollywood is taking a look at Autumn Rain? Um, I think it's well, we've, we've been seeing, uh, you know, what we've getting from Hollywood lately is a lot of remakes. Autumn Rain has a lot of originality to it. I think that's the interesting thing in Hollywood, right, is that, you know, you, you have that sort of, there's a lot of focus on the building up of the franchises, but they're all, always in need of, you know, new franchises. Certainly, if I got a call from a Hollywood producer tomorrow, I, I doubt I would hang up on them, that's for sure. I mean, <laughs> you know, you need a lot of money to do this, no question about it, right? I mean, and it would be, you know, again, set across not just one book, but but several, but... Yeah, I mean, in in many ways, I think the function of writing is you're trying to paint pictures in people's heads. So, you know, when people are telling me, oh, these would make great movies, to some ways that's the, sort of the highest compliment, uh, you know, I, I, I can think of. I mean, what I, what I was trying to do with these books is, you know, I mean, it's funny, I, I you know, grew up on all of the old Cold War spy thrillers, John le Carre and that sort of thing, and when my agent signed me, she said it was like, Without being prompted, she said it was like, you know, John le Carre on sci-fi crack. I <laughs> looking. I don't know exactly what sci-fi crack is like, but I'll, I'll let you guys know when I find it. Uh, <laughs> sort of that, that, that thriller thing combined as well with a lot of kinetics, a lot of combat. Um, you know, there's an awful lot of, you know, shoot em up situations involving some real – I was really trying to sort of – raise the bar for combat scenes. You know, I, I read a lot of formulaic combat scenes in military science fiction. I wanted to really sort of blow people's minds with these crazy settings, these shootouts on these O'Neill platforms and supersonic chases beneath the Atlantic on maglev trains and, uh, uh, you know, confrontations in lonely uh, garden biodomes in the wilderness of the lunar South Pole, you know, really crazy settings. Um and, and and also, frankly, just kind of, you know, keep raising the bar across all this for the whole narrative, for what is the larger conspiracy behind the scenes. You know, Autumn Rain is trying not just to destroy the space elevator, not just to be a kind of 22nd century Al-Qaeda and, you know, destroy further targets. They're literally, you know, as one of the characters says, you know, they're not just assassins, they're takeover artists. They're trying to get inside the U.S. government. They're trying to you know, cut the leash that ties a lot of these characters back to their spy masters. That in some ways, the idea that the enemy could be inside you, that they could be inside this room, that they could be inside your chips already, that's the scariest thing. And that's what the characters are really having to wrestle with. I'm not sure who to trust. Yeah. Exactly. That they can barely trust themselves, yeah. little, uh, the, those they're partnered with. And they certainly can't trust their memories. Oh, yeah, because of the whole uh, hacking um uh the uh so machinery of light uh it, the the view for that's out what may 25th right the book drops on may 25th exactly may, may 25th what what can readers be looking forward to as this as this book as we, as we look forward to the uh this book being released i mean basically what can you give away without giving it away well, I'll give away what's on the back cover, and, you know, it's kind of a quasi-spoiler, but not really, and I'll tell you why, because first of all, it's on the back cover. I mean, again, for each of these, I was trying to sort of really raise the stakes. You know, I, I, I was trying to create a first book that would draw people into this world and that would give them a satisfying conclusion, but at the same time, put some hooks on that would draw them further into a second book. With The Burning Skies, I was really trying to you know, avoid that classic middle trap of a book where you can't necessarily start or end anything. Um, and the third book is sort of all about taking this to the next level. I mean, as, as the back cover indicates, 
the United States and the Eurasian coalition go to war. They, they initiate World War III, and in some ways that's the machinations of autumn rain behind the scenes doing this. Uh, and so you've got kind of a test of my sort of whole theory of space warfare. I mean, you've got World War III across the Earth-Moon system. The reason why that's not a spoiler, really, um, uh, is that, you know, A, it's kind of hard to go online and not figure that out, uh, but also B, that's just the backdrop to the nature of autumn rain and the autumn rain experiments and trying to figure out who is and who isn't autumn rain. And, you know, that's all the backdrop to the sort of culmination of these conspiracies and what's really going on, the sort of terrible final secret of the real spy master behind autumn rain. Ultimately, you know, the combat's great and that's really interesting, but, you know, the Eurasian coalition, the United States are being played by autumn rain and, you know, it's up to the characters to stop them why you have these fleets mobilized across the Earth-Moon system. So, you know, it's definitely not, you know, more of the same. I mean, I can safely promise you in Machinery Light, they've never seen anything like it, certainly not across books one and two. Um, but at the same time, the nature of these books is about secrets. Uh, and that there are plenty of uh, revealed in the third book. Very good. So... Do you see yourself as uh, remaining in the Autumn Rain universe? Are you going to be uh, pushing out beyond that? I think at this point, yeah. I mean, I'm pushing out beyond it. It's it's um, uh, firstly in that you know this is a real trilogy, right? It's it's it really does end with book three. There's no sort of you know hidden veils of oh we could go on and do book four now. You know if we get paid enough money or whatever it might be. Um, you know, I don't want to sort of say anything beyond that, but it's a, it's a real ending and that it really does wrap everything up. It really does answer all the questions you might have had about autumn rain and what's really going on and the hidden sort of plots behind the scenes. I don't rule out returning to the autumn rain universe. It probably would be more like prequels. I mean, there's a lot of rich material in this whole notion of the second cold war, which rages for decades across the 21st century and is all backstory. Um, but I think at the same time, I mean, you know, it's funny because people have, you know, been reading. The first book came out two years ago, so these books are relatively new on the marketplace. But I've been working on them for almost, basically ten years at this point. So this has been a substantial chunk of my life, and it's strange to be saying goodbye to these characters. I mean, there's a real kind of weird sense of closure going on that they they oh, no, did what they were supposed to. They they got out into the world. They got published. They you know, lived up to the promise that they made. Um, but to my point earlier, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at sort of other series, be it space opera or some sort of fantasy, uh, or even moving on to screenplays or graphic novels. I'm sort of declaring this summer kind of a, you know, crossroads. I'm going to sort of figure out which direction I want to go next. Do you make uh, convention appearances? And if you do, uh, where will your next one be? Well, I have a series of uh, readings planned, uh, which are actually all on my website, and I'll, I'll send you guys the link as well. Uh, but I'm going to be on the road for most of June in support of this book. Um, I've got a big launch party and reading, a reading and a launch party on June 2nd in Washington, D.C. to kind of kick things off. I'll be at Balticon, the local Mid-Atlantic Regional Con, the weekend before that. Uh, and then I'll be up in New England and now on the West Coast. Uh, for most of the rest of June. Uh, so, so you know, in addition, obviously, to blogging regularly, people can always find me, uh, hopefully, in the uh, various places. I'll be at Seattle, Portland, San Francisco. 
again, I'll, I'll send you the links to that. Oh, we'll put uh, in but, our show notes. But, but I definitely, exactly. But I, you know, interacting in person with fans to me is, you know, one of the, 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 the great things about being able to write and see people react to your characters. Hmm. Yeah. So, oh, wow. Well, you know, we're looking forward to, uh, to seeing how this, uh, third book transpires. I'm looking forward to finishing the first book and getting a little bit more into the universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, really appreciate you, uh, really talking about and sharing with, is there anything else you'd like to say either about machinery or light or anything else? We obviously want to give you a chance to plug your website and where they can end up purchasing the book, but uh, sure. any, anything else you want to tell us before we go into that? No, I think that's 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 basically uh, essentially it. You know, is that you're kind of looking at, you know, the, the, these books are in many ways kind of a combination of you know, there's military science fiction in there, there's a kind of cyberpunk in there, um, there's uh, almost kind of a post-human narrative in terms of you know creating these uh, you know uh, elite terrorist groups that you know I mean, and the Max and the Razors are all kind of pushing the level of you know what humans can accomplish today, kind of whipping all that into a big smorgasbord, as it were. Uh, and for me, the, the website is really the, the, the core of it. I mean, that's the good place to start to get a feel for the world, uh, to get a feel for the, not just the technology, but also, frankly, the aesthetic of the world of the early 22nd century. Well, very good. And they can find that uh, website where again? That'd be autumnrain2110.com. So autumnrain all one word, 2110.com, or just type in Mirrored Heavens and Dave Williams. Where, 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 can they, where, can they end up, where can they end up buying your books? Sure. Um, I've got links on the website, uh, but, uh, you know, the short answer there is, uh, you know, you can buy, as they say, at uh, all good bookstores everywhere and um, maybe even a few cruddy ones too. Uh, <laughs> I'm, not, uh, I'm, not, I'm not discriminating. I mean, it's uh, – Of course. Uh, you know, it's it, you know with the advantage of being you know with a publisher like Bantam Spectra is that you can pretty much uh, get the books anywhere, and as well as the first couple, which you know for people just diving in, I'd recommend them obviously starting with you know Mirrored Heavens. Very very cool. Well, thank you so much, Dave, for coming on and chatting with us about the uh, the Autumn Rain trilogy, and of course your newest book is coming out, and uh, we appreciate you taking some time. Absolutely, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thanks, and uh, we look forward to hearing more from you soon, and please stay in touch. Sounds good. Likewise. All right. My name is Claire Haskell. I'm in the depths of World War Three is breaking out above me.
Miles, we got to get ready to wrap up, close up the diner, you know, you know, you know, change the sign from open to close here in just a little bit in our diner. But before we go, let's cap off the evening with our sci-fi five and five. And we actually mentioned the sci-fi five and five, uh, an episode or two ago. And I thought, ah, I'd run with for this episode and decide to go with the best five sci-fi crashes. Cool. So, uh, this is where we're at, and I, I did elicit some feedback. I have some uh, Facebook, Twitter feedback from people that said, hey, here's some crashes you could talk about. So the first two are going to be ones I came up with, and the, the, the others are some others that other people came up with, including one I have questions from Miles about. Uh, my number one, and again, when I'm rating these, these are not like the best, the worst, etc. Number one, and this is a best sci-fi crash, uh, when Anakin Skywalker crash lands the invisible hand, a modified Providence-class Providence carrier destroyer in Revenge of the Sith. That's after they've rescued the Chancellor and they got a land of Coruscant. Very impressive crash scene. Yeah, it was. It was just the way he brings that ship down is just phenomenal. Uh, number two, I had to put this one in here as well, is the USS Enterprise NCC 1701D in the feature film Star Trek Generations when the ship... Star Drive section is lost during a warp core breach, and the saucer section crash lands on the surface of Meridian Three in her last appearance. Um, that was uh, that was amazing too. Um, <laughs> it was always talked about, you know, if if um, if, they, if the ship had to separate, um, and so they kind of had a little fun with that movie in, in doing that and uh, getting a new ship for the next but it's not era. the only time we've seen that ship separate I mean in one of the very first episodes of next Star Trek Next Generation it separates right it does separate but this, but to see it crash uh, yeah. like that was uh, was incredible yeah it was pretty good number three is pitch black in the 26th century the transport center uh, transport ship Hunter Gratzner and its crew of passengers who are in cryostasis run through a comet's tail and crash land on the planet Hades, uh, dumping all the passengers, including uh, Riddick, who, of course, is a Vin Diesel, and it kind of helped launch his career then. Have you seen Pitch Black? Um, no, I, I haven't. It's an amazing crash scene and another one that kind of sets the premise for the movie, crash landing on a planet. Um, uh, this next one comes from Ben M, and it was one that I didn't think of that I should have thought of, another Star Wars one. It's a Star Wars Dreadnought, the Executor, Darth Vader's flagship, and the Empire Strikes Back, when it crashes during the Battle of Endor, a crippled A-Wing piloted by Arville Sinid, uh, crashes into the ship's bridge, causing the, uh, the Executor uh, to crash into the unfinished second Death Star and explode. Yeah, that was that was funny. We, my wife and I were watching uh, our Return of the Jedi um, a couple days ago and seeing it happen. And it's you know it's that was that's over twenty that's over twenty five years ago, and it, it still is an impressive uh, crash scene. It is, it is. And the fifth one comes from Rob O, and it's from Independence Day ID four, uh, where Russell, uh, the uh, drunk. Uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, crop duster uh, possesses the last remaining missile when they're attacking uh, one of the Earth's ships, the ships that are attacking Earth, but his firing mechanism jams, he pilots his aircraft into the alien weapon in a suicide attack ensuing explosion causes a chain reaction which annihilates the ship 
what's great about that crashing is, is that um, he gets some redemption at the end. Um, oh yeah, and, and you, you thought it was being crazy and kind of useless, and uh, in the end, he's a hero. So it's very, it's very, you know, it's it's a sad, bittersweet, heartwarming scene when you see him, him crash into the uh, alien ship's uh, main weapon. Yeah. And then there's another one, Ann M., uh, this is from Facebook, said, Starship Generations, when the champagne bottle hits the ship and Becky throws her popcorn in the theater because it scared her. <laughs> I assume that's a personal reference there, not something that actually happened. Uh, I guess you could say that the champagne bottle hitting the ship is a crash, so to say, but nothing, nothing but mental. Probably more funny for them than anything. But. All right, well, so these are our five crashes. There are some good crashes there. You know, the other one I was going to put in there, have you seen Planet of the Apes with Marky Mark? Yes. Uh, I thought his crash into the Planet of the Apes this was also somewhat phenomenal. Crashing into the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah, that was yeah. a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> All right. Uh, so that's it. We have got to get out of your miles. Want to talk real briefly uh, about how you can find out about us. You can visit us at the SciFiDinerPodcast.com. Visit our show news. Find out ways that you can support us. Find out ways you can contact us. All our contact information is there. We've said it in the show already, so we aren't going to say it again. Um, and that's, you know, that's basically it here. I did want to pimp one real quick thing here. This is from the Leviathan's Chronicles. They've just dropped their 25th chapter. Miles, have you heard of these guys? No, I haven't. They basically, they were up for a Parsec Award. They do this old-time radio drama. You know, like we sat through at the Farpoint Con, that one with Felicia Day and Lee Amberg. They did that one uh, audio drama. This is what this is, and it's extremely well done. I listened to the first couple episodes. I have the rest queued up to listen to, and uh, and well worth it. The premise of this show, by the way, and we're going to play, the reason I'm telling you this is we're going to play the trailer at the end I've been throwing some music at the end. I'm just going to play this trailer at the end instead uh, to kind of promote their uh, 25th uh, episode dropping here and uh, and the final chapter in at least this first book uh, coming to a close. Extremely well done. The premise of this is the Leviathan Chronicles tracks uh, uh, Macellan, I think Orso, a young genetic scientist in present-day New York City who discovers that immortality is not a fool's fantasy but rather a reality for several factions of a powerful immortals living among us. Across the centuries and continents, they have battled for supremacy, and McCollum must suddenly grapple with the mysterious and lethal virus, a covert government organization aware of the immortals and her own family's connection to both. In order to save herself and the immortals, McCollum must learn to use a key hidden within her own DNA, but a deadly secret has been kept deep in the bottom of the ocean for over a thousand years. It could threaten not just the immortals, but all of mankind. I don't know. It sounds like uh, the premise is good. The first episode is good. It's well produced. And so if you enjoy radio dramas or you need something else to put into your podcast queue, uh, it's well worth checking out. Yeah, I'm going to definitely check this one out. It looks interesting. Well, it did. I downloaded it. I listened to the first episode today, and I, I have the others queued up, ready to go. I do want to hear it. Uh, it's uh, some good storytelling. I'm going to say that. Some good storytelling. Good. Well, Miles, let's wrap it up. Take it away. All right. Well, my friends, till till uh, next time. Good night and good luck. Oh, we'll see ya. We'll be deploying at over seventy thousand feet. The suits will supply us with oxygen and maintain our body temperature. Air is almost non-existent at this altitude, and the negative pressure would literally boil your blood. I'm scared, Sension. I'm scared too, friend. 
distance to target 11,000 meters. All right, then. Here we go, Nathaniel. Ready? Jump. The wait is finally over. Leviathan City exists at over 35,000 feet under the ocean. Tell me what is hidden here, Evangeline. The pieces are in place. It is the sanctuary for a group of immortals that have existed there for the last thousand years. I regret that I have kept certain aspects of our mortal existence secret. And soon, that which is hidden. That is, until one group decided to leave paradise and live amongst humanity will now be revealed it's now or never and one secret black door is the only thing that stands in the way of the genocide of the human race will ignite a war <laughs> that will span the globe what are those things <laughs> black door knows we're into battle all guard units this is evangeline and not everyone please tell you will get out alive i'm so sorry you count I have wanted to do this for over a millennia. Why would Evangeline want an army? I fear something very sinister is hovering around the Leviathan. It's time to get ready for war. On May 26th, Chapter 25, the season finale of the Leviathan Chronicles will drop. Go to iTunes or www.leviathanchronicles.com to listen to current episodes and get ready for the biggest chapter in the Leviathan saga. I want to live.